0: Thank you for tuning in to the Grace Graceway SermonCast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. Right now we are in a series through the book of Colossians, so grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Um, I'm going to invite you this morning to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 this morning. And... Um, and then we'll pick up in verse, uh, in verse number 12 together as well. Beginning in verse number 1, Jesus or Paul is saying this. If you are then risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That is basically what we were just singing a minute ago. That Christ one day is going to return and he's going to take us to heaven. But what about now? What until we are able to go to heaven, either by our death or by Jesus calling us to heaven when he returns, what about now? What does it mean, what is my life supposed to be about now? And if we go down in verse number 12, uh, we get that that idea. He says in verse number 12, Put on, therefore, as the elect or as the chosen of God, holy and beloved. Put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also you should do. And above all of these things, put on charity or put on love which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called to one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and to the Father by him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again for who you are. As we come in to worship you, Lord, we realize that our worship is an offering that we give to you. It's an offering that we return to you for the offering that you gave to us on the cross, that you offered yourself so that we might have eternal life, so that we might have forgiveness of our sins, and that you rose from the dead so that we could so that our sins could be conquered and our sins could be sent to the grave, so that we could put off the grave clothes and put on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for it, God. Thank you for how, uh, Holy Spirit, as you're leading us through this book of Colossians as your church, how we are learning and being reminded, Lord Jesus, of just how preeminent you are and how preeminent you are to be. And we ask that where we have not made you preeminent, you would forgive us and you would show us how we can bring you into a place where you are number one in our lives, in our hearts, and in our church. And Lord, when that takes place, when you are number one among your people, then you will be seen in the way that you are, in, in, that you are intended to be seen in this world that does not know you yet. And so I pray this morning that we would humble ourselves in your word, and that we would humble ourselves and con- have ourselves conformed to your image as is portrayed In the Word this morning, for it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, Halloween is over, finally. We tried to push it out a couple more days, right? We had Halloween was on the 31st, but we didn't trick-or-treat until last night because it was so cold and nasty on Halloween. So it's actually now, I believe, it's actually appropriate to begin thinking, and let me say this, to begin thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, I mean, some networks have been playing Christmas movies since, like, the beginning of October, right? Um, so in, in celebration of that, now it's, now it's kind of getting to where, okay, I can accept it. Real quick, on the count of three, shout out. What is your favorite Christmas movie? One, two, three. Okay, all right. I, I didn't recognize any of those. Um, none of you said my favorite. My favorite story is The Christmas Carol. Uh, there's a lot of different versions that you can choose from, you know. I like the Mickey's Christmas Carol. Anybody with me on that one? That's the best version of The Christmas Carol that was ever produced. It's kind of an awesome story about redemption, about a second chance, right? Everybody knows the key character, Ebenezer Scrooge or Scrooge McDuck, um, from, the, from the right one, from the Disney. That's, that's the way Dickens intended it. He intended uh, for it to be played by ducks and mice. I mean, that's just the way he intended it when he wrote, when he wrote the classic book, to be honest, by the way. But it's the classic story about a man who is greedy, he's selfish, And he gets a visit from the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. He gets to evaluate his decisions that he made in the past. And he gets to listen in on what people think about him in person, uh, in the person that he is. But what really causes him to change is when he sees a vision of his own funeral. He hears how he's remembered, and once he sees the death of his old self, he decides that he's going to rewrite his own obituary. So he gets this opportunity to have a second chance. And from then on, he becomes kind. He begins generous. He becomes, uh, he becomes beloved. Things That story has a lot of staying power through all of these different generations. Because deep down inside of ourselves, we all have something that we lo- would love to say, I would like a chance to rewrite a portion of my life. I would like a second chance. I would like a chance at redemption in something in my life. But does that ever really play out in real life? That's a wonderful story. And we, we know it was a fictional story. Does it ever play out in real life? Well, back in the 1800s, it actually did in some form or fashion. There was not actually ghosts of Christmas past and all of those stuff. That, none of the spirits showed up. But there was a man, and his name was Alfred, back in the 1800s. And he was given a chance to rewrite the story of his life. Alfred's family was known all throughout the world in the weapons manufacturing industry. Alfred's father had built underwater mines for Russia. Uh, that helped Russia through many of their wars, and Alfred himself had become famous for developing new types of explosives. He had 335 registered patents for detonators, blasting caps, smokeless gunpowder. In 1867, he invented the modern form of dynamite that was used in many in many wars. He built a tremendous family fortune in nearly 100 factories spread throughout the world to keep up with the demand for explosives and for munitions. In 1888, Uh, Alfred's brother, whose name was Ludwig, he died of a heart attack. But a local French newspaper mistakenly thought it was Alfred who had died. And so it hit the headlines the next day after he died, and the headline said this on all of the French newspapers. It said, the merchant of death is now dead. It went on to say that the man who had become rich by finding so many ways to kill people faster than ever before died yesterday hopefully ridding humanity of his poisonous influence. And you can imagine what it would be like to stand at a newsstand and read your own eulogy and obituary and to see, even though it's been mistakenly thought that you were dead, to see what the world actually thought about you. The entire thing that you had been living for was what was poisoning the entire world around him. He all of a sudden realized That he needed to start something new. He needed to go over. You can imagine that reading that kind of eulogy about himself hit him pretty hard. And it wasn't long after that that Alfred sat down at his desk and he began to rewrite his will. Instead of leaving all of his money to the factory to be invested in further further progressing with munitions and, and articles of war, he decided that the equivalent of $265 million today would go to the establishment of an annual cash prize that would go to those who in the preceding year, as he wrote, shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. The most prestigious of the awards was to be called the Peace Prize, awarded to the individual who has done the most or the best work for fraternity between the nations and the abolition or reduction of standing armies and the formation of the spreading of peace. The Nobel Peace Prize remains to this day one of the greatest honors that can be given to a human being. Because you see, Alfred Nobel, that's who we've been talking about this entire time, got a glimpse of the death of his old self. And like Scrooge, it gave him an opportunity to write a brand new ending for his life, and today no one remembers him as the merchant of death. You see, if I had said Alfred Nobel at the very beginning, most of you would have already connected to the Nobel Peace Prize. But when you hear just Alfred and you heard about who Alfred was, he wasn't someone to be celebrated or remembered well. But Alfred Nobel, because of this moment in his life, this life-changing thing, he he found redemption and he found a second chance and a chance to change things around. So both the fictional story of Scrooge and the real-life story of Alfred Nobel tells us that sometimes we're given an opportunity to rewrite the story of our lives. And that's really the idea that's behind chapter number 3. As we begin looking at Colossians chapter 3, we are reminded that we have been given new life a new chance, a second chance, we've been given redemption in Jesus Christ. And you see, I believe this, that the moment we come to Christ, when conviction sets in for us to be saved, when conviction sets in for us to finally call upon Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's like that moment that Alfred was standing there reading The Merchant of Death is Dead. That's like the moment that Scrooge had saw people sitting around and what his life had been like. That's that moment that we come to understand, I need a change. And the only change that I can get is through Jesus Christ raising me from spiritual death into spiritual life. That's that moment that we say, I need Christ. I surrender all that I am to him and for him to become uh, manifest in my life. In the last message, we looked at the old clothes, Right? We looked through verses 5 through, uh, through 11 and we saw these old clothes. Paul uses this metaphor of fashion and, and a closet and the clothes that we had. And we looked at some of those old clothes of the flesh. And he says we need to take off and we need to trash them in our lives. Sexual immorality, impurity of our thoughts and our mind, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, wrath, hatred, bad language, dishonesty. All these things are listed in verses 5 through 11 that we just looked at last week. And those are just to name a few. These aren't the only ones, but these are ones that Paul used as examples to the Colossians because those were the big ones of the day then. It kind of looks like those are the big ones of the day today as well. A lot hasn't changed 2,000 years later. The church of Jesus Christ is still struggling with the same sins. Why? Because we're the same people. It doesn't matter if we're ancient or modern. We're still the same people at the very core of who we are. We're still broken people broken by sin that need Jesus Christ to change us. And we need to be changed from the inside out. So this morning, we continue with Paul's look through with fashion, right? And last week, we took off the old clothes, and now we're going to look at what clothes we need to put on. So does that mean in a weird, in a weird sense we spent the entire, this entire last week naked, right? We took off old clothes last week, and now we're going to put on new clothes this week. So anyway, that was a bad joke. I didn't think it was going to fly well, but I went ahead and put it in there. Uh, anyway, but in all seriousness, just obsessing over what I shouldn't do as a Christian. It's because if we're left with just verses 5 through 11, we're left with an incomplete view of what Christ intends for us in our lives. If all we focus on as a Christian is what I shouldn't do, we get a very incomplete application of the life that is now hidden with Christ, like it says in verse number 3. Matter of fact, this is where a lot of Christians kind of live at today. They've got the wrong idea that to be a Christian means to just avoid every sin that, there, that is out there. And while that is true, while we are no longer given to sin, and while sin should be something that should be avoided, our Christian life is also much more about what we embrace in Christ. So, if your Christianity is only defined by what you don't do and what you're against, you're giving an incomplete picture of Jesus and His redeeming work that can take place. Uh, that can take place in a life. Matthew Henry says this: the old commentator of old. He said this. He said we must not only put off anger and wrath, as it says in verse number eight, but we must put on compassion and kindness. We must not only cease to do evil, but we must learn to do well. We must not only not do hurt to anyone, but we must do what good we can to all. You see, it's not just about what I don't do. It's not complete until I I focus on what I should do, on the good that I should do. And that's what verses 12 through 17 are about today. We've taken off these old clothes, and now we put on the new clothes. And we're going to look at five articles of spiritual clothing, and they're all centered in the very nature of Christ, before we get to those five articles, we need to first consider why we need to put those on. And there's a really good affirmation in the beginning of verse number 12 that we need to focus on. And that's point number one there on your outline there. There's an affirmation in Christ that comes to us. And in beginning in verse number one, or in verse number 12 of Colossians chapter three, and I'm switching over now, I was reading from the King James in the text, and I want to read from the CSB because I know many of you carry those as well. In verse number 12, the beginning of verse number 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones or as God's elect, those that are holy and dearly loved. First of all, understand this affirmation that is from God the Father on how he sees us in Christ. This right here gives us a three-pronged picture of what, G- of what God sees when he looks at us through Jesus Christ. If we are saved, this is how God sees us. First of all, he sees us as chosen ones. He sees us as chosen people. That word elect there and that word chosen means that God has handpicked us. And we are chosen, we are special, and we are valuable to him. God looks now at the church. God looks at Christians today just like he looked at the children of Israel in the Old Testament. He He looks at us as special. He looks at us as the apple of his eye and a people that he has chosen to bless and to make an example to the rest of the world outside of him. Did you realize that's our position in Christ? That's your position in Jesus, that you are special in God's eyes, that he has chosen you, he has hand-selected you, and his desire in your life is to bless you in the middle of a broken world, to bless you so that it points to the power of God. That Sometimes he will use his blessing us and his love for us and his choosing of us to call others to salvation through our testimony, and through how we live. But here's the thing. If we are not prone to praise him for his blessings, then we may not get as many blessings. Because If we're not going to turn around and praise him for his blessings, then the whole purpose of being chosen is kind of cast away. And so what God is saying is you are chosen. You are chosen by God, by a holy God. Now, what do I have that is redeeming enough for God to say, hey, I want him. I choose him. Anybody ever play pickup basketball when you were growing up? or anything, you pick up games or anything. like You go out to the park and they say, all right, we've got two team captains. Nobody stands there and waits to be chosen. I hated being the last one chosen. Now, in baseball, I wasn't the last one chosen. In basketball, usually was the last one chosen. All right, if I have to, I'll take Derek. All right, if I have to, I'll take Derek, right? Nobody likes to do that. Here's the thing. When God chooses you, it doesn't matter if you're first or last, you are chosen in God. And here's how God chose us. When God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross... It was his act of choosing anyone and everyone who would believe in him to be their savior. So if you are saved, you are chosen of God. If you are not saved, God wants you to be chosen, but that choosing is up to you. Will you trust Christ as your savior? So we are chosen in God. This is the affirmation I have. I'm chosen in him. The second affirmation is he sees us as holy. As sinful and as unrighteous as we are, we are now seen as holy by God through Jesus Christ. That word holy means to be set apart, to be set apart for a special function. It's something that stands out from the rest to declare God's nature and work. So when he looks at you, he doesn't see sinner. He sees sinner saved by grace. He doesn't see unrighteous. He sees holy and set apart for righteous acts. He sees holy and set apart to declare his grace to the world. And then he also sees us as loved. We are loved by him. You may feel that there's not a person in this world who loves you. But know this. There is a person in heaven who loves you. And his spirit is alive and well in the world today through his children. And if his children have not been showing that God loves you, that's shame on his children. That's shame on us if we've not been showing forth his love. But we are loved in Christ. And so here's the affirmation that God uses to move towards the exhortation that we get as we get into the next part. So the first article of clothing that we need to put on is the character of Christ. I cast off sexual immorality, anger, malice, hatred, all of those things, and what do I put on? I put on the character of Christ. He says in verse number 12, put on compassion, put on kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These five virtues, these new clothes that we put on, are what we are supposed to display in our living. This is our character now. It's the character of Jesus. These five things are the direct opposites of the five vices that are mentioned in verse number five. When he says put off sexual immorality, he says put on compassion. Compassion is pure love. It's love in the way that God intended, love that doesn't take advantage. Put on kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. They're also the evidence of the fruit of the spirit that is alive and well within us. There are also the qualities that are possessed and portrayed in the nature and in the life of Christ. So Jesus says, or Paul says, cast off all of this other stuff, cast off this sin, and put on the character of a holy and righteous Savior. Now here's where we see the character of Christ expressed. These are the actions, these are the heartfelt things, but here's where we see how that plays out. How does that play out in action? Well, if I'm compassionate, if I'm kind, if I'm humble, if I'm gentle, and if I'm patient, then I will, in verse number 13, I will bear with one another. I will forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. So here's what Paul says. He says, how how are you supposed to dress as a believer? You dress just like Jesus did. That doesn't mean I go put on a tunic or anything and walk around. What it means is I put on his character. When you think about Jesus and what he's done in your life, one of the things you cannot get away from is he has forgiven you. And he is born with us. I think about all the times that God has stuck with me when I've run away from him. I've run out of opportunities. I should have at least. But God says, no, I will never give up on you. And that's the way we need to relate to one another as the body of Christ. I'm not going to give up on you. You may hurt, you may mess up, you may do all those. And and for those of you who are involved in helping to disciple other people, you have to have that patience, that forbearance with one another. We have to be willing to forgive one another because, yes, we are in Christ. Yes, we are being made in his image, but we're not completely there yet, which means we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up. That's why Paul even said, follow me as I follow Christ. What he's saying there is don't follow me when I'm not following Christ. We are going to mess up. We are going to irk each other, and we have to learn to forgive. Why? Because Jesus did that to us. You ever thought about how much you may irk God? We can irk God a lot, but he loves us and he forgives us when we come to him and ask him for that. We need all of those virtues if we're going to obey the command of verse number 13. See, bearing with one another requires endurance that doesn't just give up on someone or throw somebody away when things get difficult or when they wrong you. Bearing with someone means I need to exercise compassion, I need to exercise kindness, and I need to exercise patience. Forgiving one another is going to take compassion, humility, and gentleness. None of this will be possible if the Spirit is not given control in our lives. See, if I let the flesh take control, I'm going to give up fast. But if the Spirit is in control, we can't, because the nature of God is to love and keep on loving, is to forgive and keep on forgiving when it's asked for. So just as the Lord forgives us is how we are supposed to treat people. If you've been forgiven by Christ, you should forgive like Christ. Is basically what it's saying. If you've been forgiven by Christ, then we don't have a choice. We must forgive like Christ. And so when Christ forgives, how does he do it? He forgives quickly and he forgives completely. He doesn't say, "Well, let me think about it for a while," or "After I've cooled down and I'm not mad at you anymore, maybe I'll maybe I'll forgive you." He forgives quickly. And he forgives completely. I struggle. Stacey will probably be the first one to tell you. I struggle with forgiving quickly. I'm ready. When I am ready to forgive, I'm ready to forgive completely. But I struggle with, with forgiving quickly. Does anybody else struggle with that? I want to stew in my anger for a little while. I want to stew in the fact that I was wrong. I want to feel bad about myself. Now, that doesn't happen much because my wife is near perfect. Right? Near perfect. But, you know, I want to stew in it for a little while. Anybody else with me? You want to stew in it? You want, feel, you want to feel that that hurt for a little while? Okay, good. There's, a, there's a, a really good support group I've been going to for that. Um, I'm the only member right now, but I, we're taking applicants later. So we need to put on the character of Christ, one that is forgiving, one that is patient, one that is kind. The second thing we do is we put on the love of Christ. Your wardrobe in Christ is incomplete if it does not contain the love. In verse number 14, above all, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Paul tells us that the garment of love, it's the most important and it's the most necessary one of all because love is what defines us. Jesus said, they will know that you're my followers if you have love one for another. So when people who don't know Christ look at us and they see us as hateful and spiteful and just mad at each other and mad at the world around us, they don't see the nature of Christ like emanating from us. We need to be less hateful and more loving like Christ. First Peter 4.8 says this. Above all, maintain a constant love for one another. Because love is what covers a multitude of sins. Now that doesn't mean if I sin but I have love in my heart that I'm not guilty of sin. What it means is it will, it will help to bear with a multitude of other sins against us. If you want that patience, you want that forbearance, have love for each other. Because love is what will cause us to stick around when things get difficult. Love is what causes us to stick around when people wrong us. Love is what causes us to say, I won't give up. I won't give up. Love provokes us to forgiving others like him. It goes without saying, this is not the only time the Bible tells us that we should love one another. It is a running theme throughout Scripture. In 1 John, he said this, without love, without love, our Christian character should be called into question. If we are not loving people, then our Christian character and our Christ-likeness should really be called into question, is really what 1 John tells us. Paul told the Corinthians that there are three fundamental abiding qualities of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and guess what the next one is? Love. And then he says that the greatest of these qualities is love. Love is what makes everything in our faith genuine. We can go through the motions, we can hold up holy hands, we can worship, we can be at every service, but if love is not apparent in our hearts and if love is not res- the love of God is not residing in us, the Bible says we're faking it. We're faking it. Loveless action is probably the greatest contributor to the world saying that the church is full of hypocrites. We may go about doing a lot of the good stuff, but if we don't do it with a heart of love and compassion, Corinthians says it's just like a tinkling cymbal. It just doesn't have depth to it. It's just kind of froofy. It's just surface level, and it's not real. You see, but when Christ is preeminent in the believer's life, the love of Christ will flow from everything that he or she does. When Christ is preeminent in our life, his love will flow. When Christ is preeminent in the church, there's a warmth that is generated from a Christ-like love among its people. It's my desire my prayer that our church would be a church where people, when they come in, they may not say, man, they got the greatest thing going on over there, but when I go there, I feel loved. When I walk in that door, I know that people love me and care for me and are there for me. You see, because that will cover a multitude of sins, that will cause them to overlook, hey, they may not have the best looking preacher, they may not have the best, the most gifted orator that speaks every Sunday, but those people there, they love me and they care about me. They may not get the PowerPoint right every week. But man, when I go there, I know that I'm cared about and I feel like I'm part of the family. That's what the church is supposed to provide to a cold and callous world. It should be something different where you know that the rules and the heart and the way of Jesus reigns when you're in the church. Because when that happens, the third, the third article of clothing, the peace of Christ, is felt very deeply. In verse number 15, he says, let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. So the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. But this is something that you talk to people, it doesn't matter if they say that they're in church and they're a, part of, they're, they're a Christian or not. A lot of people today exhibit a great amount of stress, anxiety, chaotic feelings that are opposite of peace that we should have. But we need to understand, too, that peace and happiness are not the same thing. Peace is not an absence of conflict and discomfort in our lives. That's not the peace that God is talking about right here. We think peace means an absence of conflict, but what peace is is a steady confidence in who's in control, knowing that no matter what may come, God has me. I'm his child, and I'll be okay. I'll be all right. True peace is something that's hard to come by in life because what we normally do is we normally look around and we think that we are just victims of circumstance all around us. But in Christ, the Bible says in the book of Romans that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. So that means that as children of God, we don't have to be a victim of circumstance. There may be things that happen in this broken world. We live in a broken world, which means we're going to get punctured by shards sometimes and shrapnel. We are. But God will heal us through that, and we are ultimately healed in Him. That means that if my life is hidden with Christ on high, that nothing will happen to me and nothing will happen about me that God has not already allowed to take place. That's the peace of God contrast that with what it said last week in some of the clothes that we're supposed to put off. Anger, wrath, malice, all of those things. All of those are reaction of a heart that's in chaos. But what Jesus says is, when you are my child, your heart shall be ruled by peace. And then the, and then the outcome of that, of that peace, ruling and reigning in our hearts, is a spirit of gratitude. I've never met a peaceful person that was high on thanksgiving. And I'm not talking about the holiday, all right? because everybody's high on Thanksgiving. Who doesn't like turkey and stuffing, right? I'm talking about I've never met a person who was low on peace and high on gratitude. Have you ever met somebody like that? I'm low on peace, but I'm high on gratitude. Because peace is what brings that Thanksgiving in our hearts. When peace rules the day in our hearts, we will be thankful. Peace is what comes from a relationship with the God of the universe. So let me ask you a question. Do you have peace today? I'm not asking, is everything going wonderful for you? I'm asking, what I'm asking is, are you walking with Jesus? Are you confident that you are his and he is yours? And are you resting in that promise and in that confidence? Because let's be honest, sometimes that's the only firm footing we can find in life. Sometimes the stuff that we go through, the only firm footing I can find is that Jesus is my solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand, but at least I have Jesus. At least I have him. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What that means is, even when the world is spinning out of control and you've been wronged, when you've been lied to, when you've been despised, maybe even hurt by a brother or sister in Christ, and everything in you is crying out in anger and the thoughts of getting even, the peace of God passes the human understanding and it kicks in and it says, be compassionate, be kind, have patience, bear with, and forgive. And then it also causes us to be thankful. This is how Job was able to say, he gives and he takes away, but still I will choose to say, blessed is the name of the Lord. Because he was a man that even though life was chaotic, he was peaceful with Jesus, or he was peaceful with God. When the peace of God will cause a spirit of thankfulness in us as well. Have you ever noticed, again, the most ungrateful people are usually the ones who are the least at peace. And so ask yourself this question. Am I spending my time Focusing on all of the stuff that's around me instead of drawing near to the one who's already in me. That's the formula to peace. Stop focusing on all the stuff swirling around me and draw close to the one who's already living inside of me. So put on the character, the love, the peace, and also put on the word in verse number 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God, here again with gratitude or with thanksgiving in your hearts. Here's the replacement for the filthy language from last week's old clothes. The exact opposite of filthy language is to be pure, and life is the pure and life-giving word of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus doesn't speak in filthy language. Jesus doesn't speak in lies. Jesus doesn't speak in hateful tones. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the words of life, the words of truth. And so we need to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us. The way I look at that and apply that to the church is that the word of God should be preeminent and should be prominent in our church. We don't need to come in here and just get a self-help seminar of here's what Pastor Derek thinks is good about things and here's what Pastor Derek says will help you out. No, it's the word of God. If I'm not using the Word of God, you don't need to waste your time being here. If your Sunday school teacher is not using the Word of God, you don't need to waste your time because it will fail you eventually. Pop psychology and human ways, they will fail eventually. But the Word of God stands forever. Why? Because it's forever settled in heaven. Is the word of Christ dwelling richly among us? The word is to dwell. For something to dwell, it has to be alive. Here's why the word of God is special. Because it's alive and living in us. It's sharper, the Bible says, than a two-edged sword. The word of God is alive and it is active. And so for it to dwell in us, it's living in us and it's living with us as well. It means that it's taking up residence in you and it's living in you. And the question is, is the word of God alive in you today Are you allowing it to take an active part in how you're living? Are we in our church allowing the word to take an active part? Are we just coming to hear a sermon and say wow that was wonderful and walk out unchanged or are we coming to be nourished by the very milk of the word and are we letting it change us and fulfill us and sustain us and correct us and mold us and conform us to his image? That's what when we gather together that's what when we open the word that's what we are opening it for, to submit ourselves to its authority and to glean from its wisdom. It needs to dwell in us richly. It means that the word of Christ has great value. Paul told Timothy about the value of the word. He said that it's profitable for everything that Timothy Timothy would ever face in the trials of his life and in his ministry. This is practical instruction on how we're to relate to one another in church life. See, what we need to do is we need to hold up the word of the preeminent Christ as preeminent and priceless truth that we cannot ignore and that we cannot argue with because it's our food, it's our sustenance. The word has to saturate everything we do. We see that and it says, in all preaching and teaching and admonishment, it must saturate our communication and counseling and exhortation. It must saturate our worship in our songs and our hymns and our spiritual songs. Our worship music must be in line with Scripture. That's why I'm thankful for uh, the painstaking ways that Ryan and Hannah and the worship team and, and all of us come together to try to put together our worship services. We don't just say, hey, that song sounds good, let's sing it. We look at it and we say, is it in line with Scripture? Does it match up with the message? Does it, does it project the message that, that, that God would have us to, to hear and to know? Because we don't just have a music ministry, we have a worship ministry. There's a difference. So we must let the Word of God reign supreme in everything that we say, And everything that we do, it dwells richly in us. Because the Word of God is like the clothing that we wear. We present ourselves through the filter of its truth. When the Word of God is reigning richly in my life, it means that I'm checking the decisions of my life through the Word of God. If I have something that I'm not sure about or if I have something going on, I'm gonna check it through the Word. And if the Word speaks clearly to it, I'm gonna follow the Word. Even if it's not popular, even if it's not something that people would even understand why I'm doing it, because the Word must be supreme, and the Word must be preeminent. And then lastly, this is the last one, and this covers the rest of it. If you're putting on the character, you're putting on the love, the peace, the Word, it all comes down to this. I put on the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. I put on the very lifestyle of Jesus Christ. We talked about, why do you pick out the clothes that you pick out? I see some people are wearing, like, Kentucky gear. You pick that out, because obviously, because you're a Louisville fan, right? No, you pick out a Kentucky shirt because you're a fan of Kentucky, right? Why do you pick out a certain brand that you pick out? Because you like that brand, you like, you like that image or the quality or whatever that it, that, it, that it projects. When it comes to the fashion or spiritual fashion... We have to understand that the character, the love, the peace, the word of Christ, it projects a certain lifestyle. It says to the world around us, I am his and he is mine. It's no longer me, but Christ that is projected through me. I am now bearing the image of Christ. I'm now bearing the image of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse number 17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're told that we should clothe ourselves in the name of Christ, but that more adequately means that we should just adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We need to consider how he lived. We need to consider uh, that we live like that. How he loves what he loves, we love. Like the old people, like like the old people. (laughs) I guess old people then. I guess it was young people then, but they're now old people. Remember the WWJD bracelets? I used to wear those, so I guess the old people then, right? Remember, it stood for what would Jesus do? It's asking, what would Jesus do? Before every decision, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The lifestyle of Christ means that Christ is so preeminent in my life that it, doesn't, that it eventually gets to the point where I don't even have to stop and ask myself that, that it just becomes the default that I go to, that I, defo- that I default to the lifestyle of Christ. There's two meanings here of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to do everything in obedience to him, that if I'm going to do something in his name, And that means I don't want to defile the purity of his name by mixing it with sin. And that we're also to live our lives in such a way that it does not bring reproach to his name. That if I bear the name of Christ, the way I live my life has a reflection on him and his presence in my life too. So this is how preeminent Christ was to the early church at that time. In the book of Acts, the Bible tells us how preeminent Christ was. It says that the Corinthians first got their name in a town called Antioch. Now, they didn't get that name because they all just banded together and said, hey, you know what? You know, a few years have gone by. Jesus is, Jesus is gone. He's ascended to heaven, and we're seeing the church grow. We're almost at megachurch status now, so we need to come up with a cool name so people know who we are. No, the Bible says that they were first given the name Christian in Antioch because it was a name of hatred and insult, because people had so become tired of the believer's Run of the believers walking around and everything that they were saying was about Christ. And the way they were living was so culturally different from the Antichrist way that the, the pagan culture was living that they were like, let's just call them Christians because they're just a bunch of little Jesuses running around. They've lost themselves in Christ. It's basically what Christian means. They're so Christ-like that they have lost their own identity in Christ. I could think of a worse insult, couldn't you? It eventually became a compliment. But now, today, it's almost flipped. I'm a Christian, and what we're saying is, but what kind of Christian am I? What do I identify with? Listen, if you don't just identify with Christ, but you've got to pull Jesus in and identify him with other people, you're not a Christian anymore. You're identifying with all the other stuff. Jesus is enough. And so what it means is to, be the, the, to, to adopt this lifestyle of Christ. Faith in Jesus had gone viral, basically. And so people tried to put it down by insulting them with it, and they said, no, this is a compliment. Remember one of the aspects of the fashions and brands is the lifestyle that they communicate. When we are Christians, we we communicate a lifestyle. And that lifestyle is one that's eternal. That lifestyle is one that's not of this world. That lifestyle is one that is seated in heaven with Christ on high. One day he is returning and we will be complete in him in glory forever. But until then, we put on the identity of Jesus Christ to the world around us. That means when people are around us, they sense heaven's temperature. They sense the spirit. They sense that they are loved. They sense all of those things. You see, when you come to Jesus, you're not your own anymore. You're gloriously and you're miraculously his. And as we go to an invitation, I want to just explain that a little bit and go a little bit deeper in that. When you get saved, you're not your own anymore. You're gloriously and you're miraculously his. You are dead now to the old way of life and you're raised to the new way. Something is totally new inside of you and with it comes a new lifestyle, one that's no longer a slave to sin and to death, one that is free to glorify the creator the way that he originally intended before sin in the garden. But something happened in the garden. Just as in the garden, when Adam and Eve made the choice to sin, you and I have a choice to be forgiven or not. That's why the choice of salvation is so prevalent and this choice of salvation must be given at every opportunity. The question today as we close out is this. Are you saved? Are you alive in Jesus Christ today? Have you been saved? Have you trusted him? Has there been a time in your life when you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, when you realized that you were lost, just like Scrooge and just like Alfred Nobel, you realized the way I've been living is just the way of death. Something needs to change. And folks, I'll tell you, you can try anything and everything you can to change by yourself, but you'll never be able to because only Jesus Christ can raise you from spiritual life to spiritual death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not one of us is righteousness enough, but because of his love, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the question this morning is, do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? If you haven't, let today be the day of salvation. Call upon Him to save you today. He'll save you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how much you've been wearing those old clothes. They come off just as easily when Jesus, when Jesus puts His hand on.